Hi everybody, uh, my name is uh, Mark Blumenstein. I practice at the Schwartz Laser Eye Center in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I am so excited to be sitting next to... Lindsay Bowl, who practices in South Tulsa at Care Associates of South Tulsa at an ocular disease and refractive surgery center. Right, so we are here in this amazing backdrop to talk to you a little bit about selecting refractive or kind of uh, just enhanced IOLs for presbyopes, who oftentimes, sometimes, or most often will have comorbid conditions. Exactly, exactly, which can complicate the, the IOL selection and the post-operative outcomes. Yeah, it does, it makes it a little bit challenging, but at the same time, I really don't think so. Yeah, I mean, as long as you know what you're doing and doing the appropriate testing first, you can streamline the process and get a really, really happy patient afterwards. And I, and I think the bigger key here, and this is why we're both sitting here, and, um, you know, probably if you look to the left or look to the right, you probably think we're like brother and sister. <laughs> yeah. People, people have course. said that often. Yeah. It's like, oh my often. God, is that like your, your older sister? And I'm like, stop <laughs> it. Yeah, it's happened a few times. Um, is that as optometrists, this is kind of like one of the most important things that I feel we can do for our cataract patients is prepare them for this amazing journey. Um, more importantly, because we have so many different options, we, we really should be preparing them for what the, the next phase of their journey will be visually. Exactly, and I think the key word that you said there is prepare them for their journey because it is a journey through the whole preoperative testing component, the surgery itself, but most importantly, that post-operative right. um, time where they really need to have expectations set so they know what each day is gonna bring them through that journey. So, so let me ask you a question. When do you start talking about cataracts to patients? You know, I always start talking to cat about patients about cataracts as soon as I think it's affecting their vision. Now, we might have the conversation, yeah, I'm going, you're going to see, if you look into your my chart, you're going to see that I've diagnosed you with a cataract. It's not quite ready to be taken out yet. Um, but once we get to the point where I hear that they're having visual problems um, at nighttime, even during their daytime, their hobbies, their activities, we start having the conversation, what can we do to better your vision? What technology do we have that we could improve your lifestyle? So, you know, what I'm hearing is basically you, you're not waiting for a patient to come in and say, you know, I can't do something. You're looking at when you start to see just slight changes to their quality of life. Exactly. Yeah. And that can be different from patient to patient. You know, you have the patient who comes in and they still are seeing the 2020 line on the chart, but at nighttime they're having difficulty being comfortable behind a steering right. wheel versus patients that you have come in and can't see the big E on the chart and they say their vision's fine. Right. And so setting those expectations with those patients, having that open conversation, you know, we need to do something to improve your lifestyle, make you safe in your everyday activities. I, I like how you said setting expectations because part of, I think, one of the most important things we can do is talk to patients about what what we can do to help them, mm -hmm. what we can't do to help them, mm -hmm. what limitations they may have. Exactly. You know, for example, you know, we could look at somebody who's myopic or maybe a hyperope. Yes. Those, we're gonna do different things between a hyperope and a myo. Exactly, and let me tell you, I love when a high hyperope comes in and they're oh, ready yeah. to have cataract surgery because this is going to be life-changing for them. I think it's much more difficult to have that conversation with a myope, especially a presbyope who has gotten so accustomed to being able to take out their contacts, take out their glasses, and still have that capability to see up yeah. close because we're gonna be changing that if we do cataract surgery or putting an IOL in those patients. Yeah, the, the hyperopes are a rare breed. I they mean, are. Especially from, I mean, because we're talking about cataract surgery, mm -hmm. but let's be honest. I mean, 
in, in 2022, this is a refractive procedure. It is. Patients do not go in expecting to come out to have to wear glasses. Right. And if they do, I, I think they still have a misconception as to what that really means because they see their friends not wearing mm -hmm. glasses or they, they hear about people who kind of been able to do things that they can't do. Exactly. And you're probably similar to I am, but I will actually recommend doing cataract surgery at an earlier age for a hypro than I would maybe another typical patient just because I know how life-changing that outcome can be for them. Well, yeah. I mean, a hypro wakes up, they can't mm -hmm. see close, they can't see in the distance. I mean, so what we really do here is we, we talk to these patients about what it would be like to not have... To have that freedom. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm crazy talk. It is. Yeah, it, it is. is. And they and the best is when they come in for that one day, the one week post-op, and it's like their life, you can see it in their eyes that their life has been completely changed. Do you, do you have any like specific verbiage or anything that you routinely ask patients about what they like to do or their lifestyles? Or... I do. So I always try to have the conversation with them what distance is your life located at? Do you do a lot of computer work? Do you do a lot of reading? Um, in Oklahoma, where I'm from, we have a lot of agriculture, so a lot of farming, which they're using more of their distance vision for that. So figuring out what their day-to-day -day lifestyle is helps you to be able to select that IOL or give them a recommendation as far as IOL selection. Yeah. I think you know, it's interesting. We talked a little bit about the hyperopes. I think the myopes are harder. Way harder. Just because They've gone, they can see close, they take mm -hmm. off their glasses. You know, when LASIK first became, you know, mm -hmm. as large as it is, or just, I think, as just, as, as uh, almost kind of a, as commonplace as it is, the myops still just never quite understood presbyopia. Yes. And when and they, still don't. Well, they still don't. Yes. And then, so presbyopia is another, just, do you have, now do you have a discussion about presbyopia with? 100%, yeah. and not only that, but we have, like specific statements in our informed consent that they have to hand write the statement that they understand that they will be, especially my elves, will be losing that ability to be able to take off glasses or contacts and be able to see up close. So you should have a statement in there with your, your IOL patients <laughs> stating, you understand you are gonna have amazeballs vision. <laughs> Right? Exactly. That that phrase exactly. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, I think that that's a phrase that I would do. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, before we get into like talking about some of the, the different lens options yes. for your patients, I think right now we've seen such a dramatic shift in the way we evaluate the ocular surface. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see patients who come in with, you know, whether it be demodex, blepharitis, right. or whether it be dry right. eye. Right. Do you, how do you prepare your patients prior to cataract surgery? For so, that? When do you start that journey as well? Well, we're hoping, because we have a lot of patients who are referred into our practice for cataract surgery. So we're hoping that the dry eye has been diagnosed by those referral doctors and is actively being treated by the time they're in our chair. But oftentimes, that's not the case. And so we are always doing some type of dry eye evaluation at that preoperative appointment when we're doing the testing. Um, from from the point where our technician brings them back and they're going to fill out a questionnaire, as soon as we're doing those IOL masters, as soon as we, because we're always doing an OCT on every single patient before they go through surgery as well, if our technicians are having to put in a lubrication drop to get quality scans, we know that there's something that needs to yeah. be treated there before we proceed with surgery. I, I think what you just said right there is a, just is a, a perfect, just kind of a takeaway is that if you're doing pre-testing, mm -hmm. I mean, even if you're doing auto refraction, if mm -hmm. you're doing you know, a topography in your own private practice, 
and you're not getting good quality scans. Yep. It's the, the quality of the tears, because oftentimes, I mean, you know, we're looking at a placido disc, it's reflecting off of the ocular surface. If mm -hmm. the ocular surface is erratic and unstable, then the results are gonna be unstable. I think oftentimes people forget that the first refractive surface of the eye is the tear film. Yeah. And if that is not healthy and quality, then the scans that we obtain aren't gonna be quality scans either. And that can really change what your outcome is going yeah. to be. It, by several diopters in some cases. And so you've got to have an optimal tear surface, an optimal corneal surface to obtain those quality scans. So do you pre-treat patients, or I, I know you had mentioned mm -hmm. that it's mainly a referral center. Do you talk to your referral doctors about starting them on, let's say, a low-dose steroid or immunomodulating agents or mm -hmm. increased lubrication prior to coming in? Yes. And every patient who comes into our office preoperatively is given preservative-free artificial tears to start and use from that time of the appointment through that one month post-op at minimum. And so we are actively addressing the dry eye issues before that patient is on that surgical table before we do anything on them. Yeah, I think I think we lose sight of the fact, I mean, it was a study a long time ago by Alice Hepatropoulos where she demonstrated that, you know, high osmolarity mm -hmm. basically changes the A-scam. And I know we have a light adjustable lens. Mm -hmm. um, are you guys using the light adjustable lens? We are, have tried to use a plethora of different lens options. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so dependent on patient. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. the light adjustable lens to me is an interesting concept um, from the perspective of in in vivo you can use proprietary light to change the surface of the lens mm -hmm. if you you know, weren't going to get great results right. or your your A scans, um, which brings like a severe dry eye patient ones where we see a lot of fluctuation and we see a lot of changes to the cornea. Yeah. I wonder if that lens might not be a good option for those patients. Potentially. And yeah. you know, I think as technology moves forward, we're going to have better and better lens options that can maybe address some of these problems. Um, but ultimately, I think it comes down to what does the patient look like when they're in your chair at that time before surgery? How can we make their eye the healthiest? Yeah. Because if it's not addressed before surgery, then the patient will always believe that the surgery caused it. Yes. And so we have to address it first. That is a key. Mm -hmm. That literally, if you don't talk about expectations or if you don't talk about what the side effects will be, yes. then they think it's a complication. A complication. And that's yeah. the last thing that any of us need is patients thinking that we've complicated okay. something that had been there for years. So do you do anything um, a little more aggressive? Are you using amniotic membranes? We do. So we use amniotic membranes, serum tears in some cases, immunomodulators, we use um, IPL. I mean, we have, we're lucky, we have the whole gambit of dry eye kind of, all the tools in the toolbox right. at our practice to be able to um, best treat our patients. So is that something preoperatively? So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we're talking about dry and I know, for me, I think it's hard to differentiate my Bohmian gland dysfunction mm -hmm. and dry eye, because I mean, I think CORB really demonstrated that the they're basically intertwined and I yes. think and I honestly think Demodex is intertwined too. I agree and yes. which is a huge thing that you want to address first just because of Demodex blepharitis with the risk of endophthalmitis afterwards so that yeah. for sure needs to be addressed before the patient gets to the surgery center. Oh that's scary. Mm -hmm. Well you, you went you really I went you, there. You went hard. <laughs> you went from like hey you need to use drops to endophthalmitis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but do, do you guys have any sort of um 
like criteria as to who you decide would do like a thermal pulsation procedure, thermal expression, or you mentioned IPL. Yeah, so we are doing a gland evaluation on um, the patients who are coming in the office. And so when we're looking at um, their glands, if we see that they have gland atrophy or um, when we're pressing on them and we're just seeing that toothpaste-like flow, that's somebody that we're gonna be potentially talking about doing something thermal on to treat that versus just using a lubrication drop or some other type of drop. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that we can do clinically is every visit. You know, there was a, I think it was Chris Starr and Priya Gupta uh, described this LLPP, which is look, lift and pull, and then push. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the main aspect of that is, is that the whole eye itself. Yes. You know, are they are they getting good apposition? Mm -hmm. Do they have meibomian glands? Do they have demodex? Yes. I mean, do they have meibomian? Yes, they have meibomian glands. But they <laughs> have meibomian glands at this point. Well, they yes. may not. They may not. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe they've atrophied away. Which we all have some of those patients too. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Those younger ones. and younger, unfortunately. That is true. Mm -hmm. That is true. So, you know, if we could circle back, I asked you when do you start talking about cataracts and. To me, it sounds like we need to start preparing our patients for this journey yes. sooner, yes. especially because you know what you just said about how my bummy and gland dysfunction can change, um, and how it's that first ocular surface. And I think that every one of us, when we're seeing patients, I think we have to uh, to, to really take an active role in looking at. MGD, dry eye patients, and... At every part of the eyeball itself, not just the cataract or not just the one thing that we think might be the easiest to treat. Yeah, great. So I just think, you know, uh, one of the things that we as optometrists need to do and can do is just be there for our patients, mm -hmm. uh, preparing them for this journey. I so, agree. Thanks. Great talk. Yeah, good talk.